Good morning, everyone. My name is Richard, and today I'll be starting, beginning the series on the book of Exodus, and we'll be in the Exodus for the next couple of months, and I hope that you'll be here uh, every week, because Exodus is one of the key books of the Bible, and we have a lot to learn from it. But let's pray as we look at God's Word. Lord, forgive us when we come to your word lightly. Sometimes we've come uh, to your word with many worries and thoughts and our thoughts wonder. And I just pray that you will help us all uh, to listen to you because, Lord, there is much to learn about who you are. There are things to repent of and we need to learn what it means to fear you. And I pray that you will help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of Exodus has uh, been important, not just for Christians, but for non-Christians as well. Some of you, uh, some of the older people here would have seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. For some of you younger people, maybe you've seen The, the Prince of Egypt, the Disney animation movie. I don't know, there was an Indiana Jones movie that recently came out, which I saw with hands just before we went on holidays. But the original movie was the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I don't know if you know, that Lost Ark was actually the Ark of the Covenant found in the book of Exodus, which contained the Ten Commandments. But there was a, in 2006, there was a documentary called Exodus Decoded by a Canadian-Israeli a filmmaker and documentary called uh, Simka Djokovic and James Cameron. He made the Titanic, that blockbuster movie. And they investigated the uh, archaeological and historical evidence for the uh, Exodus. And this is what Djokovic says about the Exodus. He's not a Christian, but he says that the Exodus is arguably the most important story ever told, for it's the foundation founding story of Western civilization. So I, I hope um, at, over the next couple of months, we will come to see the importance of the book of Exodus um, for our lives and for the whole world. Because in the book of Exodus, it reveals who God is, what his plans are for us and for the world, and how an imperfect people can be in the presence of a holy and just God. But as we come to any book of the Bible, to understand its message properly, we need to understand the context in which it comes, the bigger picture of the Bible. So the Bible is not just one book. It's actually a library of books, 66 books, in fact. And a Bible has, uh, the books of the Bible have different genres. There's history, there's poetry, there's songs, uh, letters, biographies. And uh, the book of Exodus, but uh, uh, even though it's a library of books, 66 books, there's one story which connects the whole of the Bible. This one unifying story of how God saves humanity. Now, the Sunday school children have a big advantage over the adults because over the last term they've been learning about this big story of the Bible. Now, as we come to the book of Exodus, I'm going to, this is 
this morning we're going to look at the context of the book of Exodus, we're going to have an overview of the book of Exodus, and then we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1. Okay, first, the context of Exodus. We come back uh, to this library of books. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, or Torah means teaching or instruction or law. Uh, It's been described as also the Pentateuch, which just means the five books. Then the genre that we have in the Torah is of uh, theological history. What this means is that when we come to the book of Exodus, or the rest of the Torah, it's not just history that the writers are writing. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, we don't have the name of the Pharaoh uh, that was ruling at the time. And we have other historical details which are not included, which historians would be interested in. Why? Because the purpose of the writers of theological history is they want to teach us who God is. What, What does it mean to be a people of God? They're not focused on the facts of history. Now, Jewish and Christian uh, tradition has Moses as the one who wrote most of the the Torah, apart from a few bits that were possibly added after his death. And Exodus is the second book uh, after the book of Genesis and continues the the story. So looking at the the big story of the Bible, uh, you may not be able to read all that, but that's okay. The, The story of the Bible begins with creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have Adam and Eve uh, in a perfect relationship with God. But then in Genesis 3, we have the fall where Adam and Eve decide uh, they, don't, they disobey God, eat from the fruit, and that relationship with perfect relationship with God is broken. And we see after the fall in the, in, from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, the spread of sin, the spread of evil, the spread of uh, the evil of humanity until God decides enough. He wipes out humanity uh, in the flood and only saves one family, the Noah, with Noah. And then in Genesis 12, there is a new beginning with the start of the patriarchs. That's starting with Abraham and the promise given in uh, Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. But God tells Abraham, go, leave your country, leave your uh, family, leave your household and go to the land I will show you. And then he says, I will make you a great nation and I'll bring blessing to the whole world through you. Starts with, starting with Abraham and then he, with the patriarchs, uh, his son Isaac, uh, then his Isaac's son Jacob, and then the 12 sons of uh, Jacob. These are the 12 patriarchs. And, and we heard that Joseph, one of the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, he became ruler over Egypt because he was sold into slavery uh, by his jealous brothers and he came to rule. Uh, be second in command. So this is the, the context of the book of uh, Exodus. And now we come to an overview of Exodus. And the story of Exodus continues about 400 years. There's a gap of 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. Now the book of Exodus is, has three main sections. God, the first section is God saves Israel from Egyptian bondage in chapters 1 to 18. And then there we have Moses, we have uh, the ten plagues, we have the crossing of the Red Sea, and uh, the people in the wilderness where they grumble uh, against God. And finally, we get to the second section in in 
uh, where they reach Mount Sinai and God gives them the law in Exodus 19 to 24. That's when the Ten Commandments are given. Um, the covenant, so the covenant is an agreement, uh, an ancient agreement between God and Abraham initially that's renewed with the people of Israel in this section. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He's up there 40 days, 40 nights, receiving the instructions from God. And just as he's coming down, but the people become restless. Where is Moses? What's he doing? And then when Moses is finished with talking with God, he's coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. The people, they've given up. They're building a golden calf. And they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And Moses sees that. He's angry. He smashes the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And God is angry. And God says, enough. I'm going to wipe out these people. But Moses intercedes for the people. And so in the last section, uh, and God graciously renews his covenant with Israel. Um, and it, the book of Exodus ends with the building of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a tent, a big tent, and the tabern- in the, with the tabernacle, God came down and his presence was made known. Uh, he came down into the, t- the tabernacle, and later the tabernacle will become the temple, uh, which was in Jerusalem. So in the structure, this structure of the book of Exodus, we see... What, is, what Exodus is concerned about. Exodus is concerned about salvation. Exodus is concerned about the law and worship. God graciously saves Israel from slavery. And it's clear that the Israelites don't deserve this salvation. They, they're grumbling and they're complaining to God. And if Moses hadn't interceded for them, they would have perished. And also, however great Moses was as, as the saviour figure in the Old Testament, he was imperfect. And because of his failures, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. And we notice that the law is given after Israel, after the Exodus, after they're saved from slavery. And the law is to show them how they are to live now as God's people. And we see the purpose of salvation. The reason that they were saved was that they could go to Mount Sinai, they can have the tabernacle and worship God. They were given the system of the priests and the sacrifices and the tabernacle. They taught the people how they had to worship God. They, they, couldn't, they can't worship God just any way that they wanted to. They needed the sacrifices. They needed to, how do, how do we live? How do they live as a, a people of God? Sinful people in the midst of a holy God. Well, sacrifices need to be made. Animals needed to be killed. Their sins needed to be purified. And the tabernacle was at the center of the camp of Israel as they moved. And that signified God's presence. But the center was where the king's tent was. And it identified God as their king. And these important ideas and practices introduced in the book of Exodus would ultimately find their perfection and their fulfillment in Jesus. So now that we've seen the context, we've seen the outline of Exodus, we're going to come to Exodus chapter 1. And in Exodus chapter 1, we're going to see a promised nation, an oppressed nation, and God in the shadows. A promised nation, an oppressed nation, and God in the shadows. Firstly, a promised nation. 
In the original language, Exodus begins with the, the word and, and that's to signify that it's a continuation of the story from Genesis. And it begins with a list of names. The Verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. So why begin with a, a bunch of names from one family? Well, it begins with these names because they, these, this is the family that was connected with the promise of God. The, th the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. The promise of a land, of a great nation, and of blessing. And here, as we come to the book of Exodus, we've seen God fulfilled one promise. The promise of a great nation. But there are two promises yet to be fulfilled. They're in Egypt. They're not in the promised land. And they've yet to become a great blessing uh, to the world. And in verse 8, when a new king comes to power in Egypt, we see Israel become an oppressed nation. But before that, we need to see that um, Israel and Jacob, they are the same person. And we see that in Genesis chapter 35. I've got that up here for you. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 10 to 12, God says, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give you this land to you and your descendants after you. So, in verse 5, we see uh, Jacob's family go down to Egypt. Jacob, Joseph is already in Egypt, as we already know. Um, there was been, there's been a famine, and Joseph was able to interpret the Pharaoh's dream and predict that the famine would happen. And he was put in command of Egypt, and when the famine came, the, all the Egyptian people didn't have food, and so they had to sell their land to the Pharaoh, and eventually they had to sell their own bodies to, to Pharaoh. So through Joseph, the Pharaoh came to own all of the land and all the people of Egypt. <coughs> And in verse 6 and 7, we see that even though uh, Joseph and all his brothers and that generation died, the Israelites, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, this description of the Israelites being fruitful, multiplying greatly, and increased in number takes us to Genesis is a reminder of Genesis 1, verse 28, where God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So in Exodus 1, this first section of Exodus, 1 to 7, what we're meant to see is that we're meant to see the birth of the nation of Israel has come about as a result of God's blessing and fulfillment of the promises he made to Abraham in, verses, in Genesis chapter 12 and which he subsequently made to Isaac and to Jacob. So, we see the birth of a nation of Israel, 
as a result of God's promise. But then in verse 8, we see a threat to this promised nation when a new king comes to power. It's been 350 years since Joseph died, and either this king didn't know about Joseph and what he did for Egypt, or it doesn't matter to him now. And in verse 9, the king expresses his concern that the Israelites have become too numerous, and he must deal with them shrewdly to stop them from becoming more numerous. He's afraid that if war breaks out, that he will join their enemies and that uh, they'll fight for the enemies and they will leave the country. So the first solution in verse 11 is to enslave the Israelites, oppress them with forced labor. And they had put slave masters over them and they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and their lives became bitter and harsh with labor. However, we see in verse 12 that this strategy of oppression through harsh labor and working the Israelites ruthlessly failed. The more they became oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now, this is not what we'll expect to happen naturally. When you oppress people, when you enslave them, you, know, you, expect them, you don't expect them to spread and flourish and multiply. And what we're meant to see, even though it doesn't state it explicitly, is that God is fulfilling his promises. God is helping them to multiply and spread. We see the second solution to oppress the Israelites in verse 15. The king of Egypt commands the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, when helping the Hebrew women during childbirth. They see that if it's a baby boy, they're to kill it. If it's a baby girl, they're to, to let it live. And in the original language, the word there for boy is actually son. And the word there for girl is daughter. So the command to kill the boys was not just a command to kill a nameless boy, but that was someone's son. But the second solution fails, because in verse 17 we see the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do and let the boys live. Now, when the Bible speaks of the fear of God, there are two and different and opposite types of fear, fearing God. There's a negative type of fearing God, where you're afraid, you reject God, and you're afraid of God's punishment and his anger. That's a type of fear of God that we see in when, Abraham, uh, when Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God and ate the fruit. The account in Genesis 3 says they were afraid and they hid. But there's another type of fear of God, a positive fear that comes from knowing God and loving God. And this is a fear of God. There's a sense of awe, of respect, of reverence. And this type of fear of God actually draws us nearer to God. This is why uh, in Proverbs chapter 9, the writer of the Proverbs can say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Or in Isaiah chapter 11, when the prophet Isaiah is talking about a coming Savior uh, who will find its fulfillment in Jesus, it says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something to delight in. 
And it's in this second sense that the midwives feared God. They had a reverence for God that they disobeyed the king and let the boys live. Now when we listen to, we hear a story like this, we can skip over the enormity of what the midwives were doing and what courage that they showed. The king of Egypt is up there with one of the world's worst dictators in history. He's up there with Hitler, with Pol Pot, with Stalin. He's ordering the mass genocide of the babies of Israel. And the midwives knew that by disobeying the king, they were risking their lives. It's not as if they were doing something that they could easily hide. It's not as if the pharaoh, was not, the king of Egypt, was not going to check up on the second solution. And when the Israelite babies aren't dying, he's going to demand to know and have an answer from the midwives. And this is what happens in verse 18. The, the two midwives are, are summoned before Pharaoh, before the king. And he demands to know what's going on. We know what, why they disobeyed. We know that, that they feared God. But in verse 19, the midwives lie or they stretch the truth. They tell the king, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They give birth so quickly that they, they give birth before we arrive. There must have been some element of truth to this, otherwise the, the, the king wouldn't have let the midwives live. But again, the solu this solution to oppress, to kill the Israelites failed. And we see in verse 20 that Israel increased and became even more numerous. And God is kind to the midwives because they feared God and he gave them families of their own. Now from this uh, example of the two midwives, we are not meant to see that if we stand up against an oppressive dictator, that God will always bless us, that God will always save us, like Shifra and Poa. Because in World War II, when the Nazis were kill exterminating the Jews, there were there are Christians who hid the Jews. But some of them were caught by the Nazis. And in almost every case, they were killed. They weren't saved. And most of us will never be in a situation like Shifra and Pua where we live under an oppressive dictatorship. But there will be definitely situations in our life where we are called to fear God. Where we're called to fear God against another person, your boss, organization, perhaps even other Christians or our family or our friends. And it might not be a life and death situation, like Shifra and Pua, but your choice nevertheless is important and significant for your relationship with others, your relationship with God. And maybe the choice that you have to make is that you have to fear God over your boss. Maybe uh, the, your boss expects you to put your work as a priority over your relationship with uh, your family, your marriage, or even church. Maybe your boss expects you to work on Sundays. Or maybe you're, you're working so hard at work that you've got nothing left by the end of the week. And so, you know, more often than not, Sunday is the only break that you have and that you're not here a lot of the time. 
Or maybe the choice to fear God has to be over the, you have to defy the demands of your parents or your in-laws about what you study or, or your career choice. Maybe it could be in relation to a, uh, a relationship that you're in that you shouldn't be in. Or maybe fearing God means that how you treat your wife or your husband or how you treat, treat your different has to change. At the time of the Exodus, the name of Pharaoh would have been known throughout the world. But 3,500 years later, no one knows the name of that Pharaoh. But we know the names of Shifra and Pua, and their names will be known throughout history and throughout eternity. Because that's how it is in the kingdom of God. That's how it is for people who fear God. God knows. The third solution in verse 22 is to order the murder of the newborns of Israel by throwing them into the Nile. And now uh, Pharaoh gets all, of, all the Egyptians to be involved. And unlike the first two solutions, we don't know what the outcome of, of this, this solution is. The Exodus doesn't tell us whether the Egyptians obeyed or if they defied or how it turned, how it turned out. But the point, though, is... Israel, born of a nation born from the promises of God, they now face oppression and they uh, face extinction because of the superpower of that day were determined to kill them and their nation. And that's the third thing we come to see in, in Exodus 1. That as Israel is oppressed and as they suffer, God remains in the shadows. As the Israelites are worth ruthlessly as they are in hard labor, the God of Israel does not appear and relieve them of their suffering. As innocent boys are thrown into the Nile, there is no bolt of lightning that comes down and strikes the Pharaoh dead. God remains in the shadows. As the readers of the book of Exodus, we can see God working in the shadows. We can see God, even as the Israelites are oppressed, they're growing in number. God uses Shifra and Pua. But as the Israelites living at that time, they wouldn't have seen that. All they would have felt would have been God's absence. The situation and the suffering, though, of the Israelites comes as no surprise to God. In Genesis 15, 500 years earlier to Abraham, God says to Abraham, this is what will happen. It says in Genesis 15, Know for certain that 400 years, for, four, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. So what does Exodus teach us about God and about being one of the people of God? Well, it teaches us that God allows suffering. He allows his people to be mistreated, suffer, and even killed, and that this suffering can sometimes last a long time. And God doesn't give an explanation or the purpose for why they're being oppressed to those who are going through it. Alec Moiter, he wrote a commentary on, on Exodus, and this is what he says. Experience without explanation, adversity without purpose, hostility without protection. That is how it is. That is how life will appear for the earthly people of God. And the question is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with a God who allows his people to suffer and to be mistreated? 
Or do you believe that once you become a Christian that you are protected from suffering and pain? Well, if you believe that, you'll be disappointed because God never promises that. Do you believe that God owes you an explanation for suffering? Or at least God should show you a reason. God, show me the reason, show me the purpose that I'm going through all this. And when you get silence, when you're faced with silence, you grow restless and you grow resentful. The people of this world and even sometimes fellow Christians or even our family, they will deal with you shrewdly and they'll take advantage of you and they'll oppress you. So what do we do if we're faced with such oppression when the bitterness of life eats away at any joy, scrap of joy or happiness in our lives when we go to sleep at night and the suffering just won't and the pain won't go away? What are we to do? What are we to do when God remains in the shadows? Well, as Christians, as the people of God, we are never without hope. We have the one who rules the universe as our Father, working in ways which we do not know, with plans which we may never understand. And there is nothing that can stand in the way of, the, of his plans. 1,500 years after the king of Egypt's attempts to kill the Israelite babies failed, there was another king that, that arose, King Herod. And he, he, was, he ordered the, the murder of all the babies, Hebrew ba- uh, Israelite babies under the year, age of two, in Bethlehem and all the surrounding regions so that he could kill, try to kill God's saviour, the baby Jesus. And that king failed. And all the kings will fail against God's plan. And this God's plan, his plan was, his plan, God's plan was so outrageous, so unbelievable, that his own people, the Israelites, would not believe the plan. And they would not comprehend it. That God will send his own son, Jesus, to die in the place of people who deserve death. What the people of God experienced in the Exodus, Moses as their mediator, the law, the Passover, the sacrifices, uh, the priests, the tabernacle, these were enormous privileges, never ever seen before, given to God, to a nation. But these blessings, these were just a shadow of the reality to come. And that reality was fulfilled in Jesus. They, feel they found their perfection, their fulfillment in Jesus, who was a greater and better Moses, who was the Passover lamb who was sacrificed. He was our priest. He's the high priest. And the sacrifice of his life was once for all. In the Old Testament, the, the sacrifice has to be done over and over again. But Jesus' sacrifice for his life was perfect. Never was another sacrifice needed. So what do we do when we feel like God is in the shadows? We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. Go to him with your fears, with your worries, with your pain, with your suffering. For Jesus promises that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you, and that you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, the people of Israel, they, they suffered and uh, they did not understand 
why you are in the shadows. But thank you that through your scriptures, through your word, we can see that you work even in the shadows. And I pray for those of us who feel like you're in the shadows, that you have not appeared in our suffering. And I pray that you will help us to see uh, that hope is in you, that we will not give up, that we'll go to you. We'll go to you, the, the, the greater and better Moses, our mediator, the perfect sacrifice. And in you that we will find comfort, in you that we will find the promise that you will never forsake and leave us and help us to find rest in the midst of our restlessness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.